take your Bibles with me once again. We return to Luke chapter 22 this morning. Luke chapter 22, beginning with verse 21. But behold, the hand of the one betraying me is with mine on the table. For indeed, the Son of Man is going as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to discuss among themselves which one of them it might be who was going to do this thing. And there arose also a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded to be greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But it is not this way with you, but the one who is greatest among you must become like the youngest, and the leader like the servant. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table, or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials. And just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. And you will sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. We pick up then in the upper room. Jesus and his disciples are reclining around the table, celebrating the Passover meal together. And as they do that, Jesus also institutes the Lord's Supper. That's where we left off last week. But having instituted the Lord's Supper, Jesus has more to say, some of which he himself initiates and some of which is in response to what his disciples were saying. And so in our passage this morning, we're going to hear Jesus addressing betrayal and quarreling and faithfulness. Although his thoughts were turning ahead to the cross, to his crucifixion, He's dealing with a situation that is now staring him in the face, in the present. He speaks of one who is betraying me, he says. Present tense. This is what's going on now. It's going to lead to the cross. But this is what is happening in that moment. Behold, the hand of the one betraying me is with mine on the table. For indeed, the Son of Man is going as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And that statement is remarkable, isn't it? For what it reveals about the sovereignty of God in the plan of salvation. We're going to talk about that shortly, but there are a couple of things I want you to see before we do that. 
First, I want you to take note of how verse 21 begins and how it ties into what we saw last week. Verse 21 begins with that little word, but. And that lets us know that what is about to be said is intended to stand in contrast with what we've just read. Now, what have we just read? We saw it last week. Jesus has just said that his sacrificial death, his blood, which would be poured out for us, is the act which inaugurates the new covenant. So that's the predicate. Christ is about to institute the new covenant, that great and wonderful promise declared through Jeremiah, which we saw last week. That is about to come to fruition, and it is Jesus in his divine sovereignty and power who will accomplish this. But, what is the contrast? The contrast is the betrayal. That is, the one who is so divinely powerful as to be able to inaugurate the new covenant is the same one who will be betrayed by one who is even now sitting at that table sharing this fellowship meal. And that is the great paradox of Christianity, is it not? God takes on flesh. The creator is destroyed by his creatures. The defeated one is victorious. The one who is buried rises and lives. But the other thing I want you to see is the title with which Jesus describes himself. He speaks of himself as the Son of Man. This is a title Jesus often used of himself throughout the Gospels, and it's a title that is very important in Luke's Gospel particularly. All of the Gospels use the term, but Matthew and Mark use it the most. Matthew used it 29 times, Luke used it 26 times, compared with 13 and 12 for Mark and John, respectively. And when most people come across this phrase in the scripture, the temptation is to simply contrast it with a similar title, Son of God. And to assume that Jesus is speaking of his nature as one who is both God and man. And there is some truth to that. Son of man obviously implies humanity. Son of God obviously implies deity. However, there's far more to it than that as well. Son of man is not a title that Jesus just made up for himself out of whole cloth. He didn't sit down and wonder, you know, what would be a cool name to call myself by? Jesus gets this from the Old Testament. It has a history. Now, we need to be careful here, because sometimes the phrase Son of Man is simply being used to describe humanity as a whole. For instance, there are examples, and many of them, where the phrase Son of Man follows a statement which applies to man in general. Jeremiah Chapter 50, verse 40, for instance, in speaking about the judgment of God against Babylon, says, As when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah with its neighbors, no man will live there, nor will any son of man reside in it. And when the phrase son of man is used in that way, it 
is a means of emphasizing something. It's a repetition. The point is that no one will live in that place. And it's stated, that single point, in two ways. First, no man will live there, and second, nor will the Son of Man reside in it. It is a typical Hebrew way of expressing and emphasizing something. And there's many examples of that, of course. But that's not how Jesus is using the term here. There's another way in which it is used that is similar to the first. All through the book of Ezekiel, that prophet is referred to as Son of Man. But again, that's not so much a title as a descriptor. Ezekiel was a human being. That's the point there. In order to understand how Jesus uses the phrase, however, we've got to come back to the book of Daniel. Because in Daniel chapter 7, we find this phrase used in such a way that Jesus can take it as his own, as he does, as a title. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, this is what we find. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And when you listen to those words of the prophet Daniel, what do you find? You find that the Son of Man is more than just a man. He is a highly exalted figure. He is the Messiah. He is the one who comes with the clouds of heaven. He is the one who presents himself before the Ancient of Days. And he does so needing no mediator. He is one who is given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. He is one who is served by all peoples and nations and men of every language. He is the one who will reign over a kingdom that will never end. That is where Jesus takes his title. The Son of Man. Jesus comes. And reads Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, and says, That is me. I am that highly exalted one of whom Daniel spoke. You see, when you read the phrase, Son of Man, in relation to Jesus, when you see Jesus applying that title to himself, don't think merely of Jesus' humanity. Think of Jesus' Messiahship. Think about his majesty. Think about his rule and reign. Think about his kingship. That's what Son of Man means when Jesus takes that title to himself. And that's the contrast which Jesus is drawing here in Luke 22. 
He's saying, I am the high and exalted Messiah, promised from ages past, but I will nevertheless be betrayed by one sitting here with me at this table. Now we already know that Judas is going to betray Jesus. We saw that at the beginning of this chapter. Luke took us into the secret room where Judas met with the chief priests and negotiated a price. But we are not the only ones who know this. Jesus knows. One of his closest companions, a man who has traveled with him for three years, one who sits here at this table, will betray him unto death. And remarkably, we are told that this was all part of God's plan. Indeed, verse 22 says, The Son of Man is going as it has been determined. The Son of Man will die the way God has determined. The whole Gospel of Luke has been moving in this direction, unfolding the predetermined plan of God. Time and time again, Jesus has already Declare that he will suffer and die and rise again. Ever since he set his face toward Jerusalem and the cross, we have known for sure what his end would be, humanly speaking. He would go to the cross. He would be crucified. The cross, then, was not some kind of tragic misfortune. It was not something which was out of the hands of the Savior. It was something which God had decreed from the very beginning. It was all in God's perfect and sovereign plan. Even the betrayal was a part of God's predetermined purpose. As Peter would say in his Pentecost sermon in Acts chapter 2 verse 23, Jesus was delivered up according to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. If you move on from Acts chapter 2, just a couple of chapters, to Acts chapter 4, you see the church gathered for prayer after Peter and John had been arrested for preaching the gospel and thrown into prison. Peter and John are eventually released and they come back to where the church has gathered in prayer. And we have recorded for us in chapter 4 of the book of Acts part of that prayer that the church was praying. And this is what verse 27 says in Acts chapter 4. Truly, in this city, that is Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, and he could have added, and Judas, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to Occur. It has been determined. Nevertheless, Judas is still responsible for his sinful acts. God's sovereignty does not diminish man's responsibility. Indeed, verse 22 says, the Son of Man is going as it has been determined, but... 
Woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Now, I'm the first one to admit this is difficult to understand. God's sovereignty, man's responsibility. And people have been debating these issues from time immemorial. But, though it is difficult to understand, it is not difficult to see on the pages of Scripture. And I ought not to expect that I will understand everything that I find in the Scripture. Because there are things that God has not opened up for us explicitly. He has not explained everything. And the fact that I cannot understand the workings of the infinite God ought not be a surprise. I'm not that bright. And neither are you. What we do know is this. God is always faithful and His Word is always right. And so when His Word tells me that the betrayal had been determined by God in eternity past and that Judas will be held responsible for his actions. Then I say, yes, both of these things are true, whether I understand how they work together or not. God is going to hold Judas fully responsible for choosing to betray the Lord Jesus Christ. God's sovereignty is not an excuse for our iniquity. We cannot be those who say, well, the devil made me do it. Or certainly, God made me do it. When we sin, it is our sin. It is our decision. It is our act. In pronouncing this woe, Woe to that man who, by whom he is betrayed. Jesus was expressing his distress over what would happen to that man. Because although Judas later regretted what he had done, it was remorse without repentance. It wasn't godly repentance leading him back to Christ. It was a human sinful remorse that led him to take his own life. And so he dies in despair before going to his eternal damnation. Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. What decision will you make about Jesus? Either for him or against him. What choices will you make about who to worship, what to love, what to look at, what to buy, who to follow? What language to use. What gatherings to attend. Who you embrace as your closest friends. God will hold you fully responsible for the decisions that you make. Do not fall under this woe pronounced by Jesus upon Judas. When Judas lifted his hand against the Savior. The prophecy that Jesus made about his betrayal instantly causes a commotion among the rest of the disciples. 
They began to discuss among themselves which one of them it might be who was going to do this thing. Which one of them would be the betrayer, they wondered. It's interesting, isn't it? No one argues with Jesus anymore. Earlier on, before they had spent quite so much time with Jesus, they felt much freer to tell Jesus he was wrong. <laughs> this happens. Jesus tells them about what's going to happen to him. I'm going to Jerusalem. They're going to, they're going to take me. They're going to crucify me. And the disciples said, no, 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 they're not. Where Jesus says, you know, you're all going to abandon me. It's not me. The rest of these clowns, maybe, but not me. Nobody does that anymore. Now they just start wondering, who is it? Which one of us is going to turn out to be the traitor? And quarreling breaks out amongst the disciples, leading to the next section of the passage, and you can see how the first leads into the next. It doesn't seem that the identity of the betrayer was obvious to anyone. We read about Jesus being betrayed, and immediately we know it's Judas, obviously. It wasn't so obvious to the disciples. When Jesus spoke about the betrayer, it's not as if every head in the room turned toward Judas. They thought it could be anybody. And they were hoping it wasn't them. So it wasn't obvious. But instead of accusing each other, it's interesting, they all began to defend themselves. I would never betray Jesus, each man would say. Then he'd remind everybody how faithful he had been. You know, I was the first one that Jesus called, Peter could have said. Yeah. Matthew might have said, you were only a fisherman. <laughs> I left a lot of money on the table when I came to follow Jesus. Matthew being a tax collector. James and John might have said, well, that all may be true, but we're the only ones he ever called sons of thunder. <laughs> However it happened, there was a dispute that arose among them. Verse 24 says, There arose also a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded to be the greatest. But I want to bring something else to your attention which should cause this to have even more of an impact upon us. Luke doesn't specifically mention it, but John writes extensively about it in his gospel. This struck me when I read verse 26. Where Jesus says that the greatest among you must become like the youngest and the leader like the servant. You'll remember in John chapter 13, John is telling us about the Last Supper as well. And John gets a little more detailed. John tells us about the first thing that happened when the disciples entered into that upper room that night. Now in our day, when someone comes into our home, it's customary for the host to take that visitor's coat and to hang it up for them until they're ready to leave. In first century Palestine, it was customary for those coming into a home to have their feet washed. 
The streets were hot and dusty. Feet get sweaty. Everyone coming into that upper room would have had disgusting, gross feet. And so the job of washing those feet was not a pleasant one. Not being a pleasant job, who do you think would have been assigned to the task? Well, if there's a servant present, it would be the servant who did it. But if there were no servant present, then the task fell to the youngest. That is, the person with the lowest social ranking in the room. Jesus says in verse 27, or verse 26, the one who is greatest among you must become like the youngest. Now you all know the story, of course. The, the, the basin and the towel are sitting right there, but nobody makes a move. So in order to teach them humility, Jesus takes up the basin and the towel, and he washes the feet of the disciples. Now John tells us that all of this happened before the meal. And now, after the meal has been eaten, what are the disciples arguing about? Who is the greatest? Within the time that it took to eat the Passover meal, the disciples had forgotten everything they had seen and heard from the Lord. Now, it would have been much more appropriate for them to talk about how to stay faithful to Jesus. Yet they quickly moved from worrying about letting Jesus down, as they should have, to speculating about how much credit they deserve for being the great men that they obviously were. Like the disciples, we want people to know how great we are. Even if we don't get into many arguments about it, we secretly hope that people will give us the attention we think we deserve. Our, our pretensions to greatness are there in the little comments that we make to inflate our own reputations. And the sudden disappointment we feel when someone else gets ahead. And the sharp criticisms we launch to explode someone else's accomplishments and bring them down. Hmm. They're also seen in our feigned humility. No one as proud as the one who proclaims his own humility. The problem with us is that we have the wrong definition of greatness. We think the great person is the one who gets ahead of everybody else in life. Not a servant, but the master. And if that's what we think, then our whole idea of what it means to be great needs to be redefined. It needs to come into line with Jesus' definition. Look at what he says in verses 25 and 26. He said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But it is not this way with you. And what Jesus really means there is it ought not to be this way with you. But the one who is the greatest among you must become like the youngest and the leader like the servant. This is basically a description of people still in our day. 
How do people define greatness? It's money, it's power, it's prestige. The greatest people in the world are the billionaire businessmen, the movie stars, the professional athletes, famous politicians, the power brokers, the celebrities, the superstars. Jesus has a totally different definition for true greatness. After giving the world's definition, Jesus says, ought not be that way with you guys. The way the world looks at things is not the way God looks at things. According to Jesus, the greatest person is not the person at the top, but the person who voluntarily takes a position at the bottom. The one who would typically be assigned to wash the filthy feet of other people. And here Jesus tells us to take the younger person's place in our daily relationships. Do the difficult job that no one else is willing to do. Because Jesus understands that there is no task, however menial, that is beneath the dignity of his disciples. Let someone else go first. Offer someone else the biggest peace. Listen to someone else's concern rather than doing all the talking. Instead of asking other people to do something for you, think of what you can do for them. Rather than seeking to gain attention, seek out someone who is being ignored and needs a friend. Follow the command of Paul in Philippians 2. With humility of mind, regard others as more important than yourselves. Mm-hmm. Paul understood the lesson Jesus is teaching here. And he summarized it very succinctly. You can't miss it. With humility of mind, regard others as more important than yourselves. Can it be any clearer than that? What is your definition of greatness? Do you have Jesus' definition? Or are you still looking for money and popularity and power and the life that comes with being in charge? The greatest disciple is the one who offers the humblest service. These disciples had just seen and heard Jesus do and teach that very thing when he washed their feet. And they've already forgotten. Jesus then proves his point by giving the most perfect example of this, and that is himself. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who Serves. Now Jesus asks this as a rhetorical question, and so Jesus went ahead and gives his own answer. Which is greater, the person sitting down to the feast or the person waiting on a table hand and foot? The world would say it's the person sitting down for the feast. Jesus says, I'm not that one. I'm the one who serves. True greatness is seen in me. True greatness is found in the one who imitates me. 
To know true greatness, we look at Jesus. He is great because of who he is, of course. He's the second person of the Trinity, the only begotten Son of God. He's always is, always has been, always will be, very God of very God. He is not merely a man. He has absolute deity and every attribute of deity. Jesus Christ is the Lord God, which means that there is no one who is greater than he. He is also great, of course, because of what he has done. He has created the universe. Jesus is the creator. Nothing in all the vast galaxies of interstellar space is not the product of his divine mind. And his spoken word as it came into being. Jesus lived a great life. Through all the trials and temptations he suffered on earth, he never committed a sin. He is the only morally perfect man who has ever lived. He is the only one who has ever kept the law. He also died a great death so that we might gain a great salvation. No one has ever done anything greater for the human race than Jesus did when he suffered death on the cross in our place and then rose again from the dead Amen. to life eternal. Mm -hmm. Jesus Christ is the greatest of all. And because he is so great, he is the one who deserves to be served. He is the infinitely superior person. He is the one who ought to be reclining at the table with all the disciples serving him. Those disciples should have been fighting amongst themselves to see who was the one who could wash Jesus' feet. That's the proper order of things. And so that's the premise of his example. But Jesus said... I among you, I, I am among you as the one who serves. Everything gets turned upside down. And this is what opens up true greatness from the heart of God. Although I am considered the greatest one, I am the one who serves, Jesus says. More literally, I am the one who waits on tables. Jesus He's proved this earlier in the evening by washing his disciples' feet. He has been serving his disciples since the day they started to follow him. Leading them, feeding them, healing them, teaching them, correcting them, training them, loving them. Soon he would serve them all the way to death. Bearing their sins all the way to the grave. Jesus took his entire life and he gave it to his disciples and he gives it to us. The very greatest one of all made himself our servant as he accomplished the work of our salvation. And now Jesus calls us to be like him. To find our true greatness in living for others rather than living for ourselves. Forgetting ourselves for the sake of You know why so many people have such emotional struggles? So many people struggle day to day 
in this world. And so often, the problem is right here. They cannot forget about themselves. Everything is about them. And brothers and sisters, if you can put yourself aside, if you can think nothing of yourself, but put others before you, Jesus most of all, your entire mindset will change. Yeah. The way you look at situations, the way you deal with situations, it will all be different. Someone offends you, what does it matter? I don't matter. Someone hurts you? I deserve worse than that. I'll let God deal with it. How can I serve that person? Everything gets turned upside down. And the less we think of ourselves, the more liberated we become. The point is not that service will get us to greatness, but that service is greatness in and of itself. Leon Morris wrote, Jesus is not saying that if his followers wish to rise to great heights in the church, they must first prove themselves in a lowly place. He is saying that faithful service in a lowly place is itself true greatness. To know who the great people are in the kingdom, look for the people who are serving in the lowest places. They're the people who don't get recognition. They will be the people who don't look for recognition. They're the people who never try to put themselves out in front, saying, how come I'm not doing that? Why is that person being honored? Those kinds of things never occur to them because they're too busy being faithful to their Lord. One way in which Jesus is great is seen in his grace. And we see that here. Jesus could have ended his rebuke of the disciples with verse 27. He could have left them in the dirt, so to speak, feeling terrible about themselves, feeling horrible about their own selfishness and pride and pettiness. But he doesn't do that. He brings them down, and then he lifts them up again. Look at verse 28. You are those who have stood by me in my trials. Yes, they have a long way to go. They are not the kind of men that they ought to be. But they are still the ones who are with Jesus. The work in them is not done. We already know they are going to abandon Jesus. But after three years of Jesus' earthly ministry, they are still there. 
And Jesus reminds them of this. You are those who have stood by me in my trials. Just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. And you will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. These words were spoken first to the disciples and secondarily to us. The disciples had failed over and over and over and over again. And yet Jesus can still look at them and see faithfulness. Yes, you've blown it. Yes, you've got all kinds of issues. But you know what? You're still here. You're still walking. And I am not going to forget that. He's going to reward our faithfulness in spite of our unfaithfulness. The twelve apostles were the ones who stayed with Jesus in his trials. They, this was an extraordinary thing for Jesus to say, given the fact that later that very same night, in his greatest trial of all, the disciples would run away from him. Nevertheless, in his mercy, in his grace, Jesus remembered everything the disciples had ever done in his name. I hope that's an encouragement to you. Because we have a tendency, don't we, to look at our failures? I look back over my life and I can tell you the list. I blew it here and I blew it there and I was unfaithful here and I sinned against him. And in the end, Jesus is not going to be focusing on those things because those things are under his blood. Jesus is going to look at me, I trust, on that final day and say, well done, good and faithful servant. You stood with me to the end. Not perfectly. But you stood with me to the end. The disciples stayed with Jesus in these trials. And their faithful service would not be forgotten. It was not wiped out by their episodes of unfaithfulness. Every service they offered would be remembered and rewarded in the kingdom. And here Jesus was giving the disciples kind of his last will and testament. Testament is the right word to use because when Jesus speaks here about granting them something, it means assigning something to them. It's covenant language. Is he used this biblical verb for making a covenant. These are solemn promises. As the Father granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. And you will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And Jesus is saying in that language, I am making you this covenant promise. I will fulfill it. Your faithfulness will be rewarded. You 
participate in my eternal kingdom. One day the disciples who were with him that night would sit down with him again at a great banquet, which the Bible uses as a symbol for all of the blessings that God has in store for us in his kingdom. The disciples would also sit down with Jesus on his thrones, ruling the twelve tribes of Israel. And this too is symbolic. The twelve tribes of Israel is an ancient way of speaking about all of the people of God. About us. This is why you come into the New Testament. You have all of this Old Testament language used of Israel now applied to the church. Jesus does not give very many details here. It's another one of those passages where you come to and say, boy, I really wish he told us a little more. I have all kinds of questions about this. But he doesn't. And the hidden things we need to remember belong to him. The things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. And what has been revealed to us is that the apostles will rule with Christ over God's people. We don't know what that means, but it is something that is glorious. To judge or to rule is to have a place of authoritative leadership. The first disciples were promised to receive a place of privilege in the kingdom of God. Indeed, the scripture says that the whole church is built upon their ministry. That's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. Now obviously these promises are primarily for the disciples. Only the twelve apostles were given authority to rule over the people of God. Only their names are written on the foundation stones of heaven in the city of the New Jerusalem. But the blessings of the kingdom, the blessings of eating and drinking and God's table are for all of the covenant children of God. Amen. That's our promise. Mm -hmm. Jesus promised a kingdom to us every bit as much as he promised a kingdom to the apostles. And he kept his promise by dying on the cross for our sin and then rising again. Now by the grace of God, true greatness is waiting for us. There is a place for us at God's table. A place for anyone who repents from, of their sin and believes in Christ and his work on the cross. Jesus Christ, the greatest one, invites us to come. And if you have not responded to that invitation, then today is the day of salvation. Do so. Make nothing of yourself and become great by becoming a child of God through repentance and faith in Christ. Every believer in Christ will experience this kind of greatness. We will eat and drink at the table of the Lord Jesus Christ in the kingdom of God, not because we are such faithful servants, but because the greatest one of all served us unto death. That's the promise. It's the promise that Jesus makes to his people. 
Well, he is almost literally on the way to his death. Jesus' name.